today on Ag News Daily. They are including new regulatory requirements that are, are coming coming to the farm gate uh, to ensure that the use of those pesticides doesn't harm uh, any threatened or endangered species. Listeners, happy Friday. April 21st, 2023. We are here to bring you the latest headlines, Tanner and Delaney, along with a great interview of Delaney's today uh, as she got back from her trip. So looking forward to that. Are you staying warm, Delaney? I didn't go outside yesterday. I'm going to be honest with you. Well, it's even colder today, and I am not looking forward to a little kid's softball game this evening. No, that doesn't sound doesn't sound like a fun weekend activity to me. It reminds me of uh, like high school track mm-hmm. from back in the day to where you would show up with your sweatpants and your sweatshirt and your winter coat on. But then you'd have to take all that off to run your race and just be freezing cold. But that's what a lot of us up here in the Midwest are uh, dealing with. National Weather Service has everybody in Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, all under freeze weather alerts. Southwest Iowa, Eastern Nebraska, Northern Missouri are all under freeze warning. So kind of an interesting pocket there right in the middle of the Midwest. Further north, uh, we look at the continued potential for additional snow accumulation. Up to four inches is expected. Delaney, this is April 21st. I said that already. I'm saying it again. We should not be dealing with snow on april 21st no but i mean i think we're still going to see a lot of that up in the dakotas hopefully none down here in the lower midwest states tanner but you know last weekend we got some so i guess we're not out of the clear yet but it's really definitely going to continue to impact planting season yeah that's right and there's talks too. tyne morgan reported yesterday that there's still a potential late April freeze. We're mid-April now, so there may be one more swing of this cold temps coming at us. Yes, but staying in line here with weather, the updated seasonal drought outlook for the U.S. is still painting a grim picture, even considering the rain and snowfall we've seen here in the northern plains and midwest the national weather service forecasts continue to reflect drought in kansas all the way from kansas to texas in that swath there similar to the dust bowl swath as uh forecasters are expecting to see some improvement to drought in parts of nebraska and iowa However, when you look at the u.s drought monitor that was just released yesterday or earlier this week tanner It's looking pretty dire in most all of Kansas, especially the southwest portion and the pretty much entire swath of Texas, aside from really the eastern side of the state. But also seeing it creep into a little bit of western Oklahoma and it's going to be tough to get crops planted or if they are planted already got in there and got planted, it's going to be tough to see those crops develop moving forward or if they will have a crop at all. Yeah, that uh, that was unfortunate for our neighbors to the south. Looks like here that South America may have avoided their first weather hurdle. Of course, as we talked about these farina corn crop in Brazil, 
it looks like that first hurdle was planting season. Uh, it looks like Brazil has successfully navigated that in all of their areas and got their corn planted within their primary planting window. The southern, south central states, Mato Grosso and uh, Dessal and Piranha had bigger delays due to that rain, the rainfall causing wetness that we'd reported on here, but there still looks to be expectations for another record crop. With just a week left to go in the wet season, it appears that the crop has successfully handled this hurdle so far. La Nina typically leads to a shortened wet season in central Brazil, although as we've talked, uh, that La Nina effect could be waning and we could be looking at either switching to a neutral or El Nino pattern which could cause other influences. There's still fears that uh, wet season rains could end early. And obviously that's the next hurdle planned as far as what traders are watching to see if we turn off dry. Uh, moving north, Argentina looks like they've had a lack of rainfall during their wet season. It was not uh, perfect rain compared to what they're looking for typically, but they got enough consistently to not cause any yield losses or any predictions of yield losses as far as those go. Of course, they've got some dry spots, Delaney, just like what you reported on here in the US, but a majority of their crop looks to still be in good shape. And uh, we will continue to watch how it handles pollination period and what kind of moisture they get during that period. Well, Tanner, we saw some legislation here in the Iowa House that has failed and left Iowa's carbon pipeline fate still uncertain. An Iowa House bill that would restrict the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipelines in the state is effectively dead until at least the next session in 2024. The Senate failed to advance that piece of legislation. And so now that leaves the issue of eminent domain with the Iowa Utilities Board, and they are able to decide on the rule of eminent domain. Tanner, the proposed bill would have banned the use of eminent domain unless they, the carbon companies had secured at least 90% of the planned pipeline through voluntary uh, acceptance by those farmers and folks living in the area. But the Senate was not able to pass it. And now it goes to this Iowa Utilities Board, which is made up of three folks nominated by the governor. As we look at, you know, groups in support or not in support or just vocalizing their opinions. Most people in the ag space are taking a very neutral stance. We've seen the Iowa Farm Bureau president take a neutral stance regarding the pipelines, although suggesting, of course, that they side first and foremost with the farmer when it comes to property rights. We also saw the Iowa Corn Growers Association also echo similar comments. And we have not really seen Governor Reynolds take a clear stance on the pipelines either. So it sounds like there's a lot of people just kind of balancing on that fine line, waiting to see what happens. And as you look at the three major pipelines here in the state of Iowa, they're continuing to secure that voluntary land easement, but no construction has started and construction and safety of construction is still the major concern. So next step here, we see the Iowa board that three member board will start a 
public commenting period and hear arguments about the pipeline's safety, job creation, yields, etc. And not really clear what they're going to do, because since 2000, this board has granted the power of eminent domain for two pipelines and five electric transmission lines. However, it's also denied use for electric transmission lines. So there's really not a clear idea in our heads right now heading into this thing, which way they're going to go here, because they've really done it both ways. Yeah, it's an interesting spot as a host of two podcasts and a a community banker to talk with some of these leaders of these organizations. And you're right. It's even behind closed doors. The opinions seem to be neutral because as we've reported, we've shared studies here on the podcast that dictate what value the pipeline, the CO2 pipelines could bring to the price of corn and the demand for ethanol. We also know that the rights in which be from interviews uh, that we've done on both sides of the project for uh, what the land is like after a pipeline goes through and what the compensation package looks like. So it's interesting to see how the leaders of a lot of the ag organizations and purely just representatives for the state are taking that neutral stance. I'm glad that you put that article out for our listeners. As uh, I report more on the banking industry, Kansas City Fed put out a report yesterday The non-real estate loan volumes dropped 10% in the first quarter from levels over last year. And uh, the average increase the year before was 15%. Lending activity was pushed down due to fewer new loans requested and smaller sized operating loans. So Nate Kaufman, uh, one of the economists for the Kansas City Federal Reserve, The average interest rate on those, Delaney, charged across all types of farm loans increased for the fifth consecutive quarter. It is now at the highest level since 2007. The average interest rate on real estate loans climbed three and a half percentage points since 2021, so two years ago. We're now looking at an average just shy of 7%. Interest rates on non-real estate loans are up four and a half percent during that same period to a little over seven and a half percent. The range of interest rates uh, provided to borrowers has shifted rapidly, said Kaufman. In contrast to the average over the last two decades, three fourths of the new loans in the first quarter had an interest rate above 7%. In comparison, more than half of the farm loans prior to 2020 had an average loan rate below 5%. So it looks like uh, the expense for borrowing money is continuing to trend higher. That's not a secret to our listeners. We've been reporting on that for quite a while. And most of this, as far as loan volume goes, is due to remarkably strong farm income. As you look at uh, 2021 and 2022, those were the first and second setting back-to-back records of the highest U.S. net farm income, and 2023 is projected to be the third highest. So with that, there's more cash in the market, therefore reducing some of the borrowing needs. So even though there's an inflated interest rate sector for agriculture, it looks like borrowings are less. So it may not have as substantial impact on the industry as a whole, but will mainly affect those that have to borrow more money, Delaney. Yeah, I had this story pulled up as well, Tanner. So I'm glad you went through the numbers there with us. Nothing really additional, I I think, that stuck out to me. Uh, But I did have a really good conversation with uh, Farm Credit Services 
earlier this week in DC. So we'll be playing that conversation. We talk about the, these specific topics of borrowing rates, interest, how that's affected um, farmers and their balance sheets this year. So we'll be sure to bring that conversation to our listeners early next week. But Tanner, I think I have just one final piece of news here, and that's regarding avian influenza. The U.S. government has suggested they're unlikely to vaccinate against bird flu here as we continue to see aggressive culling of infected flocks. Um, the It's unlikely that we see the industry turn to vaccines as a tool against the disease, according to Ag Undersecretary Jenny Moffitt. She told lawmakers that the USDA has devoted about $1.3 billion to quell the 14-month outbreak of avian influenza and to keep African swine fever out of the country. However, both diseases have, of course, extremely high mortality rates and pose a threat to food supplies. Regarding the avian influenza and why she doesn't think we'll see folks really turning to that is she said at this stage of the outbreak, um, the best and most effective option is to continue the current strategy of eradication. She said they continue to stress more than anything else that a strong biosecurity presence is important to every producer. And while the USDA is currently developing a vaccine to use on bird strains uh, so that if we have this in the future, she said it's going to be 18 to 24 months before a vaccine would really become available. And she's hoping to get things quashed before that point, Tanner. Yeah, I'm glad that you went a little bit more in depth than that. We touched on a little bit earlier this week, but I'm I'm glad that we're continuing to get some clarity as to why, uh, rather than just stating that it won't uh, be used. All I've got left is a couple of headlines uh, from Russia, Ukraine territory. Twelve drones were launched on Kiev early this morning. Uh, Ukrainian Air Force officials are stating that they were successfully defended amongst those drones. NATO continues to state that Ukraine's fit is in their group. However, the NATO secretary is stating that he expects Ukraine to become a member, but Kiev is stating that they don't anticipate becoming a member anytime soon. A Russian fighter jet was forced to make an emergency drop of aviation munitions over the Russian city of Belgorod, or Belgorod, uh, as far as pronunciation goes, causing a large explosion, injuring two people. And uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, Sergei, will meet in New York with the UN Secretary General to discuss potential peace talks, uh, but there is not a positive connotation in that article as far as things look there. So just a couple of updates there. It looks like uh, Russia's military of defense has continued to recruit more soldiers. So we don't expect to see this war ending anytime soon, but that's what I've got for today. What do markets look like? Markets are still trading lower here in the overnights as we head into the final trading session of the week. May corn will be two pennies lower to open at 6.61 and three quarters. Dece new crop corn down two and three quarters cents to open here today at 554 and three quarters. May soybeans down seven and three quarters cent in the overnight at 1489 and three quarters. November will clock in at 1292 and a half down eight pennies in the overnight. May hard red winter wheat is the only grain market here trending higher as it's two and a half cents Higher in the overnight, we'll open at 8.42 and three quarters. And a quick look here at livestock. You know, it's interesting, Tanner, I was just chatting with some folks yesterday about livestock. 
it's getting tougher for the lean hog folks, the hog folks to make any money, even if they are contracted. So a lot of folks in the protein space are hoping we see a little pop here for the hog markets as it's getting tougher there to make a profit. But nonetheless, June live cattle will open 75 cents higher at a buck 64.35. May feeder cattle opening today at 212.35. And May lean hogs down $1.95 yesterday will open this morning at 76.82 and a half. Tanner, super excited to kick this over to a conversation I had earlier this week with the president of CropLife America, Chris Novak. Once again with Chris Novak, the president and CEO of CropLife America. Chris, we chatted last year during NAFP's Washington Watch, but a few new issues have popped up this year I feel like we need to hit on, but thanks for joining. You know, the thing about agriculture is it is a dynamic industry, and here in Washington, the agricultural issues uh, probably uh, change more frequently, I think, than uh, the crop seasons. So uh, a new a new set of issues, but some of the same challenges that we have faced in the past. You know, our, our primary job representing the manufacturers and distributors of agricultural uh, pesticides here in the U.S. is to ensure that farmers have the tools and technologies they need to fight the, the, the pests, the weeds, the other uh, uh, insects uh, that threaten the, the sustainability, health, and safety of their crops. Yeah, and I think being here in Washington, D.C., the thing that is top of mind for me is the farm bill because we're working to get that hopefully in place this year. What are some of those issues that CropLife America is focused on for the next farm bill? Well, from from the standpoint of, of our companies, uh, we have certainly always looked to say this is, this is the farm bill. It is for farmers. Uh, but we also know that the agricultural research investments are, are absolutely critical to our businesses. Uh, we know that, that crop insurance is an important important tool that farmers are using uh, to protect the viability of their crops and and that that you know relationship you know with our farm customers is important we are taking a more active role looking at the farm bill this year because farmers have some new challenges coming from the EPA uh, as EPA is is registering and re-registering new pesticides they are including new regulatory requirements that are are coming coming to the farm gate uh, to ensure that the use of those pesticides doesn't harm uh, any threatened or endangered species. We see in the Farm Bill the opportunity for farmers to uh, be given more access to precision agriculture tools. Uh, John Deere has a see and spray sprayer technology that, that we think would reduce the volume of spray applications, but that also will help us protect any threatened species on the farms. We hope someday that EPA will allow farmers to utilize that technology as one of the mitigation measures that they're requiring. But those are the types of of conversations that we see taking place within this farm bill. The other important issue for us is is climate smart agriculture. Pesticides play a critical role, and we see that as a major discussion in this next farm bill as well. You know, I'm glad you mentioned EPA because that's one of the things I was thinking about before we started chatting today was you work with new administrations every four years and also a new EPA that has different priorities for what's important for their administration. How do you balance that out? 
Well, and, and certainly uh, as we look at the political dynamics in the world today and, and obviously lots of change, challenge, and uncertainty, uh, I will give a great deal of credit to the Biden administration that they have essentially come in to say we need to address the the problems uh, that, that do exist with regards to uh, the continued availability of pesticides, and they are working to find solutions uh, to address some of those problems. One of those problems, the biggest one of those problems, is the threat of litigation. So a new pesticide is approved, and the environmental activists will sue uh, the agency and challenge the agency's decision. And to the extent that EPA needs to be able to prove that it has done what it is required to do under the law, uh, because we have seen in one situation where a court stepped in and said, EPA, you approved this pesticide, but you didn't comply with the Endangered Species Act. So we're going to vacate uh, the registration of this pesticide or basically disapprove the continued use of this pesticide. That's, that's obviously a very dramatic consequence if you're a farmer that has relied on that technology and suddenly you don't have that pesticide available because a judge in a court, you know, in D.C. made that decision. We want to ensure that the regulatory decisions on pesticides are made by the, the career scientists at EPA who know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. Yeah, and not only do you focus on domestic issues here in the U.S., but CropLife also has, CropLife America has other, I'm going to call them sister organizations, correct me for a better term, but but you have other organizations within the CropLife space, CropLife International, CropLife Asia, that are also working on issues impacting their countries, but you also work together to then talk about how, how do you come at issues that are, are global. T- talk to me about some of those global issues that you and your other constituents are working on right now. Well, I think most farmers probably do realize that our, our food system today is global. So corn and soybeans, wheat, uh, other crops that are grown here in the United States, a portion of those is exported to other countries around the world. Each of those countries has its own regulatory system and wants to ensure that the food that is you know, being exported uh, to those countries is safe and meets their uh, food safety, quality, and environmental standards. And so uh, we are working across uh, the, the globe uh, with uh, our network of crop life organizations. Uh, the latest example is new, chal- new regulations in Europe that will restrict the use of pesticides that are critical to U.S. farmers. And what Europe has done is to say, if you're using these products, you have to meet our import standards or import tolerance. Um, And Europe has reduced that import tolerance to a level that would basically prohibit U.S. farmers from using that technology. You know, that is the European government making a decision on a technology that, you know, our EPA has ruled is safe and effective and that farmers can use here. But because of the challenges with international trade, uh, that may we may see restrictions coming in the future. So we're working um, to look at how we might challenge those regulations in the European court. Uh, but we also will be working with our CropLife network to turn to the, the World Trade Organization and, and file a challenge within the WTO on those regulations. Yeah, and that's something we were talking about before we started recording is how two people from different countries doing the 
same type of research might come up with very different results when you look at what the EU is putting forward as safe and acceptable policies and what the U.S. is putting out of safe and acceptable po policies. Talk to us a little bit about the hazard versus risk approach. Yes. Well, and, and uh, things that I have learned even as I've grown through my agricultural career, and, and I had always heard about the precautionary principle in Europe and, and had a sense of what uh, was contained in that. But essentially, Europeans, Europe's regulatory system is built around the idea that if you identify a hazard, uh, that that is where the, the consideration and evaluation process stops. Uh, whereas here in the U.S., uh, we recognize that how you utilize a particular chemistry, how you may be exposed to a particular chemistry, is a significant part of, of the potential risk that you might face. For some chemistries that we have on the market today, if a farmer is going to use that, that particular chemistry, it is highly toxic, and the farmer may be required to wear what's called personal protective equipment. They may have to wear gloves. They may have to wear a suit. There's other pesticides that are approved on the market today where, uh, you know, yes, you should wear gloves, but but no other, no other equipment is required. That is a, a bit of an example of, you know, there's a different risk profile to each of those chemistries, but instead of saying no to this one particular chemistry, we're saying you can only use it under these conditions and circumstances. Uh, and if a different pesticide has a different risk profile, then there's not as many restrictions on how it's used. Europe Europe stops. They wouldn't get to that final calculation, and that's, that's where we see different scientific philosophies that are impacting not only global trade, but also now uh, with this example of the European regulations, having the potential to tell a farmer in the U.S. that you can't use this particular product uh, if you're going to uh, potentially export your commodity uh, to Europe. And speaking of telling farmers in the U.S. what they can't do or what they can't grow is a good segue to talking a little bit about the debate going on right now between Mexico and the United States is related to not just GMOs, but it sounds more like biotechnology in general. It's it's biotechnology and, and genetically modified organisms. Oftentimes, you know, we also talk about, you know, biotech biotech agriculture um, or agricultural biotechnology. Uh, but agricultural biotechnology today is also interwoven with the use of pesticides. And so uh, as we saw biotech crops uh, that were insect resistant, B, you know, BT crops, uh, those actually helped reduce the amount of insecticide sprays that we had to put on a crop to protect it from insects. Our herbicide tolerant crops uh, allowed us to spray a herbicide that might have otherwise once killed the corn crop or the soybean crop. Um, now we can spray that particular chemistry over the top of, of that crop and the crop lives but the weeds die. That's been an important tool to help farmers reduce tillage. Uh, it has in some instances help them reduce or change uh, the number of pesticides or herbicides, weed killers that they've had to use. Uh, Mexico has, has in some ways, though, con conflated and confused these two issues. Uh, the president of Mexico uh, has, you know, specific opposition to certain pesticides. Uh, and some of the decisions we've seen out of Mexico that are related to biotech seeds, actually, I think if you look at the decision, have a basis in his concern over pesticide products. And so, uh, you know, we are urging the U.S. government, as they are 
pushing Mexico to abide by uh, their uh, requirements under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, we're pushing the U.S. government to make sure that they're taking a holistic, holistic approach and that they're dealing with both the biotechnology issues and the chemistry issues. Mexico has an obligation to abide by the agreement. Uh, Mexico has been a country that has relied upon a science-based regulatory system, uh, but they've lost a little bit of that under President uh, Lopez Obrador. Chris, I feel like we've just gained so much information from your wealth of knowledge in the agricultural industry and, and specifically related to those issues for Crop Life America. Thank you so much. Well, Delaney, as a fellow Iowan, always a pleasure and uh, great to catch up with you. Thank you. Delaney, glad that you could share that with our listeners. I'm looking forward to possibly more conversations out of your trip for our listeners to get some good perspective on things. So thanks again for doing that. Listeners, thanks again for hanging out with us for a whole another week. We'll be back again on Monday with some markets, right, Delaney? Absolutely, Tanner. But in the meantime, we hope our listeners have a great weekend, hopefully a little warmer weather. And with that, Tanner, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.